Hi, welcome to lesson seven of God of Creation, our study of Genesis. Today we're gonna to camp out in just the first few sections of our study. I wanna say good morning or good evening to you whenever you're watching. I'm Cheryl Pasilio, daughter of Elmer, son of Paul, son of somebody whose name I've completely forgotten. I've been thinking a lot about genealogy since we've been studying this stuff. And I've been pondering about family lines and how we keep them alive. About 20 years ago, some of my elder relatives realized that the branches of our family tree were becoming too wide and disparate, and we didn't know each other. My grandmother came to this country in 1906 with a cousin, and they each started a family line. And so our aunts decided we should start gathering together in a family reunion, which would be fun if we knew anybody in the room except the people we came with, which we didn't. But add a little fried chicken and bingo and some white elephant prizes and you can make a party, and we did. But I never really knew who all belonged to what family line because we were two and three and four and even five generations out in some cases. And it turns out I wasn't the only one confused. So a few years in, they decided to do announcements. They would announce new jobs, moves, babies, and marriages. And one time they announced that two of my cousins from the other family tree, whose names I only knew a little, had both gotten married to each other. What can I say? It was Indiana. They were second cousins and far removed from the time of having children, but still, it was kind of the elephant in the room when I said to my aunt, aren't they related? And she said, they're from the other family tree. That put a kink in things a little bit. As I was thinking about some of these family trees, I, I am pondering all the good stuff that our author is teaching us next week. You will not want to miss, in her, miss her lecture. There is one tiny thing that kind of struck me as something that she won't be answering. But it's one of those things that catches me up. It's not a deep biblical question. It's not a matter of faith. It's a matter of this big question, the elephant in the room. What's with those big genealogical age numbers in Genesis? Now, am I the only one who wonders about this? I know we could spin off on a bunch of rabbit trails, but and if this is not your issue, if you have this completely settled in your mind, God bless you, perhaps bear with me for the sake of helping a weaker sister. I've been wrestling with this a little bit, but what I'm finding is that this lecture may end up being more questions than answers, so I'm sorry for that. Now, why wonder, some of you will say, God can do everything. Isn't he in the business of doing anything he wants at any time? And the answer is amen and yes. He can do anything he wants. And accepting the miraculous is a big part of being a believer. From creation, from dust, from parting waters, from speaking burning bushes and donkeys, to our Savior being born of a virgin, to raising from the dead, if we didn't believe in miracles, we wouldn't have a faith at all. Speaking of water. So yes, if God wants, so yes, if God wants people to live 900 plus start years. That, start that over. So um, stay, look right in the camera and then start that sentence real quick. So yes, if God wants us to live 900 years or more, he can surely do it. It's all in the realm of possibility because God lives outside of time and space. But it just may be that there's more to the chronology than meets the eyes. It may be that we're missing something even deeper and richer and good by not asking the hard questions or by doing as I have for many years, skimming over those hard to pronounce names and those strange numbers. 
So keeping in mind that spiritual things are discerned spiritually by those whom have the, the, who hold the spirit, let's pray, come Lord Jesus, fill us with your spirit so that we, be, we can understand better today than we did yesterday. So if not for studying this for, for yourself, Think about studying it for a weaker sister, somebody for whom these numbers have become such a stumbling block that they'd be likely to look at all scripture and dismiss it out of hand as a fairy tale. I know that happens. So these are the goals uh, that we're going to talk about today as we come together. This is what has anchored my research this week. There are two goals, one for others, being prepared, as it says in 1 Peter, to make a defense to anyone who asks you for a reason for the hope you have and doing it with gentleness and respect goal one, so that others can answer this question and we can come to them with a gentle, respectful answer. And number two, that those of us who are already in the faith may be encouraged in heart and united in love so that we may have complete, have the full riches of complete understanding in order that we may know the mystery of God, namely Christ, in whom are hidden all the treasures of wisdom and knowledge. Yes, I want to know. Maybe I don't always get to know, but that doesn't stop me from wanting to know because the Lord invited us to reason. He gave us reason for a reason. In Isaiah 118, it says, come reason together. So I invite you, come reason together. We know from Mark 12 that God God wants us to love him with all our heart, soul, mind, and strength. We know from James that he will give wisdom to those who earnestly seek it. And we know that he aims to transform us by the renewing of our minds. So let's start renewing our minds a little bit today about what those numbers could mean. And we can start by appreciating that the scriptures are written in various genres. We have some historical epics like Kings. We have some allegory like Hosea and Song of Songs or Song of Solomon, as you might know it. We have definitive instructions like the book of Numbers, as well as many straightforward passages in the epistles, in the epistles like Jude, which we studied last semester, along with poetry and music in the book of Psalms. And it was in the book of Psalms that some of these questions about age came to my mind because I found Psalm 90, which is attributed to Moses, the same author to which Genesis is attributed. Psalm 90 says, Lord, you have been our dwelling place for all generations. Before the mountains were brought forth or ever you had formed the earth and the world, from everlasting to everlasting, you are God. You return man to dust and say, return, O children of man, for a thousand years in your sight are but as yesterday when it is past, or as a watch in the night. You sweep them away as with a flood. They are like a dream, like grass that is renewed in the morning. In the morning it flourishes and is renewed. In the evening it fades and withers. For all our days pass away under your wrath. We bring our years to an end like a sigh. The years of our life are 70, or even by reason of strength, 80. Yet their span is but toil and trouble. They are soon gone, and we fly away. So teach us to number our days, that we may get a heart of wisdom. I named this particular lecture, Teach Us to Number Our Days, for this reason. We see these amazing, sweeping allegiances to the Almighty God, the Creator, about whom Moses writes in Genesis. Did you catch him? his admonition to number our days, to value what he gave us. And did you catch verse 10, where he says, we'll live to 70 or maybe 80 at most. Yeah, so how does that reconcile with those 900s in Genesis 5? 
Turns out archaeologists agree with this version. So what do we make of that? Well, we know from our study so far, from excellent commentary by Jill and our author, that, that the book of Genesis and the Bible is not a science manual or even a history book. The Moody Commentary says that Genesis is not even the story of the beginning of the world. It is primarily the storyline of God's redemption beginning with the people of Israel. Let me say that again. Genesis is primarily the storyline of God's redemption beginning with the people of Israel. Looking at it through that lens may change how you see these numbers. According to the Moody Bible Commentary, the purpose can be seen even in their proportions of the number of books, a uh, number of chapters in the book of Genesis. So the proportions themselves, another number, can tell us something. Here's what they can tell us. The first 11 chapters of the book of Genesis, which we are going to be studying in completion, cover the entirety of primeval history. So 11 chapters cover everything in primeval history. Then for 39 more chapters, we, dis we discuss four generations. What do we learn from just the proportions? That this is a book not about who, not about how or even why, but about who and what his, God's redemptive plan for the people of God that he has called his chosen people is. It's a book about him, about his ways and his invitation to, jo to join the journey of salvation and to do so along with some standout ancestors. Let's meet them. First, let's do a comparison. I want to talk a little bit about the difference between a family tree and a genealogy. So 23andMe and DNA tests and researching that's made easy by the internet these days can be very helpful to find out your family tree. I am quite certain that on my family tree I can find out who the father of my father's father was. I'll bring that next time. My sister-in-law did us all a favor by researching my mother's side of the family and she found out a lot and she pasted long sheets of paper on the wall with groupings of people that look something like this. Confusing at the least. Helpful, but confusing. Even then, she went back only five or six generations. In the book of Genesis, we see the genealogy going back 10 generations and even farther as we get deeper into the Bible. By contrast, a genealogy is a straight line description of who begat whom or who fathered whom down a very specific point. It's like a directing arrow from this point to that point, who was on the path. And this is what we see here in the Genesis 5 genealogy. We start with Adam and Eve. The genealogy that we're finding in Genesis 5 begins with Seth, not Cain and not Abel. Why is that? Well, God has something to tell us about his redemptive plan through the line of Seth, which he does not have to tell us through the line of Cain, who he has ostracized, you know, and Abel, who is, of course, not with us. So the line that God is teaching us to draw is down through Seth. And if you read carefully, you will see that Adam and Eve bore Seth and other sons and daughters. Are they listed out here? Are they part of the branch of the family tree? Are there cousins in there who are going to get married? Maybe. Then we go to Enosh, to Kenan, and all these hard names that I like to skip. There are 10 of them. And on the last uh, line, Lamech, we have Noah. And under Noah, we have three names. We have a bit of a rhythm here. We have 10, 10 ancestors, each with one son, 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 one son till we get down to Noah, 
and they list three. That's just interesting, isn't it? What makes it more interesting is when you compare it with this genealogy, which is the genealogy of Seth. I'm sorry, I said that incorrectly. Of Shem. I've said Seth. I meant Shem. The genealogy of Shem Let's that... Start over. Sure. Uh, just um, start from that. Wait, let me get a drink. Okay. Um, start from when you are going to go to that next slide. Okay. Did I say Shem, though? I'm not yeah, sure if I... You said uh, Noah, there's only three names. And then yeah. you went and then you started... Okay. And for Noah, at the end of our line of 10, we have three names. Well, that's unusual compared to this other genealogy. But it makes more sense when you look over here at the genealogy of Noah, which begins with one of those names. All others are listed, but the, the genealogy line in Genesis 11 takes us down the same way as the genealogy line of Genesis 5. One character, 10 ancestors, and three names at the bottom. So we see from our looking at numbers how proportions can teach us something, how the rhythm of numbers might be teaching us something. So what that has to tell me is there may be more in these numbers and in these lists of names I like to skim over than I've ever really taken in. And there's something for me to find out about them. All the generations from Abraham to David and David to Jesus are also listed. If you go into the New Testament, the very first book, the Gospel of Matthew, the very first verse, it says this is the genealogy of Jesus. And he summarizes the genealogy in a very truncated list. We call this telescoping when all of the ancestors aren't listed, but also in a rhythmic way, not 10, but in sections of 14, Matthew himself tells us, so all the generations from Abraham to David were 14 generations, and from David to, um, looks like I have something missing here. Shoot, oh, I have two lines here. From David to the deportation to, the, uh, to Babylon, 14 generations, and from the deportation of Babylon to the Christ, 14 generations. I have an extra line here written twice. Please try to ignore that. So let me say it again. All the generations from Abraham to David were 14 generations, and from David to the de deportation of Babylon was 14 generations, and from the deportation of Babylon to the Christ, 14 generations. These are all listed out rhythmically, generation by generation in the book of Matthew. Now, is it possible that these generations are meant to be taken absolutely literally? And the answer is yes, it is quite possible. And many scholars do say that the genealogies and their times and dates are meant to be taken literally, and we should take them at face value, Moody Bible among them. But there are other points of view which we're going to discuss. But right now we're going to discuss how those points of view might be literally understood in four theories. Here are the four theories, literal explanations for the long lives in Genesis. Four theories, a year-month season theory, an astronomical change theory, a tribal and dynasty theory, and a canopy theory. I'll go through them. In the season, month, year explanation, the, the um, speculators posit that time was actually measured very differently from the beginning. Years actually represented something that we don't call a year right now, maybe even a month or a season. 
And I've thought that myself as I was reading those big numbers. Maybe if I just divide them by the right number, they'll make sense to me. And it does work for some of the characters. If you call them um, seasons or months, Seth would be 16 at his first begetting, which is not impossible. He could have fathered a child at 16. But Methuselah, who the list says begot at age 500, would still be closer to 125 years old. So it's a little bit different, difficult to reckon that way. So maybe there's another explanation for those long numbers, maybe an astronomical one. This is a theory that says the Earth's rotation was different, and so days were not equivalent. Or that a supernova damaged the Earth's ozone at some point, which dramatically later decreased the age of man. But there's no evidence scientifically of that. And there's the tribal or dynasty or clan explanation, which posits that the word fathered or begot really um, indicates the reign of a family line. And those long numbers are indicative of how long that family name held prominence. But this does not explain how some of the patriarchs seem to have had a direct relationship with their sons. And lastly, there's the canopy explanation. It says that pre-flood, the world was so atmospherically different that people were shielded from the deadly radiation so that they could live longer, similar to the astronomical um, explanation. But there's no scientific evidence for this either. Now let me say this clearly. Believers are free to come to their own conclusions because this is not a gospel-dependent issue. But for the sake of discussion, let's look at some other explanations for those long names. Let's look at some non-literal, some figurative explanations that might use some symbolic or sacred language. So we'll get a clue from this. Parallel cultures at the time of Jesus, or at the time of Moses rather, which was about 1400 to 2000 BC, we think, also had these habits of listing great people with great long lives. According to the Cultural Background Study Bible, parallel cultures have some of the same techniques. Genealogies are not unique to the Bible. Sumerian kings lists are found in several ancient documents and use outlandishly large, large figures for the numbers of years some of the kings supposedly reigned for various metro, uh, Mesopotamian city-states. One is said to have ruled for 28,000 years. The numbers there came to have a role in legitimizing certain dynasties so that when we see some numbers in literature from the ancient Near East, like Genesis, we must consider which way they were being used. So it's possible that this was a, um, a cultural way to express honor. So we're going to talk about that. Is that literal speech or figurative or metaphorical language? Can two people like Moses say two things about the age of man in different ways for different reasons? Was Moses exaggerating a point in the beginning in Genesis and being more realistic in the Psalms? It's possible Jesus did the very thing using colorful and figurative and parables, parable language left and right, he said to his, he said um, about using language that was confusing. All these things Jesus said to the crowds in parables, indeed he said nothing to them without a parable. This was to fulfill what was spoken by the prophet. I will open my mouth in parables and I will utter what has been hidden since the foundation of the world. 
Jesus used figurative speech to teach, particularly at the Sermon of the Mount, which is where we're seeing him directly after that. And there were some confusing things that Jesus said. They didn't understand how it was that he would say certain things and why he would say certain things. And Jesus said, I'm saying it so that only the most invested people will continue to come back for clarification. But figuring out what is figurative and what is literal is still the quandary. So I want to ask another question. Does the way we see the world affect how we count things? Here we're going to talk about the concept of worldview. A worldview is a way of looking at things. It's a moral or cultural framework through which we perceive the world around us in order to determine what we value. How we see things and how we frame them shows how we value them. I found this out about time. My, uh, how we view time and how we use time, you know, we're talking about ages and time, matters and it changes in different cultures. In my husband's family, the sense that you are on time means you are a half an hour early so that you have time to visit. In that way, time is communicated as an act of love. In my father's house, he paid no attention to the adage, uh, time waits for no man, because we all waited for that man. Time was something he didn't want to control him. So for him, not following time was a matter of freedom. In my life, time always trips me up because I'm trying to do more than I can fit in a minute. So for me, time communicates how much I really, really want to do for you. All cultures seem to see time with somewhat of a different value, even family cultures. We've had to work that out with my mother-in-law on arriving early. Here is a trip my husband and I were privileged to take to Bali. This was about 10 years ago, and after a 20-hour flight, we were driving through the countryside to find our place of reservation, and we noticed that at 2 a.m. there were markets open. In the middle of the night, villagers were buying and selling fruits and vegetables and sacrificial meats at 2 a.m. That seemed strange to us. Then later in the morning when we woke up jet lagged at an odd time, just at daybreak, we noticed shadowy figures all around the grounds putting incense by every doorway. And then thinking 8 a.m. or 8.30 was time for us to go ahead and have that cup of coffee, we took a walk into the village where there was much hustling and bustling going about. And we went to a place called a cafe that said they had coffee. And we asked for coffee and they said, no, it wasn't time for coffee. It was time for honoring the ancestors. We had to come back later. What we found that in Bali, time of day and how you spend it according to their values didn't match ours. Ours needed coffee. When we came back later to that same cafe, we did see coffee sitting up on a shelf in honor of an ancestor along with a cigarette and an ashtray. Interesting time. Their worldview told them what to do with time and how to spend it and how to measure it. They measured it also by how many steps they would take to the top of this temple. We visited this temple, and I'm going to tell you, this is called the Middle Temple, because just to get to this place, we had to go up a mountainside, and then up these many stairs. And we watched families climbing up these stairs with babies on their hips, with food on their hands, wearing flip-flops, wearing all white, proceeding up the temple. And when we asked, we, we found out that they take pilgrimages regularly up to this temple to give worship and honor to their gods. In Bali, there are flowers and fruit on every threshold and in front of every idol, and there are many. They are on every street corner, and they are in front of every house. 
As we watched people carrying things up the steps, we joined them at the temple thinking, well, this is certainly interesting. We'll take some notes on how this, this culture um, uh, worships. But they began to disappear up another set of stairs that disappeared so quickly into the clouds that we had no idea where they were. This middle temple was just leading to the higher temple. With those babies on their backs, with those, their arms laden with gifts of fruit and food, they walked up to the mountains to worship God. They counted value by virtue of how many steps they took. Worldviews will tell us something about what we value. We always count what we value. So this goes without saying is that um, different cultures have different value systems and different countings. BioLogo says uh, Genesis 5 gives us a very specific number, but it was not written for a 21st century English audience. So our concern is not with what these words would mean if they were written to us today. Instead, as some biblical scholars regularly remind us, we should ask, what would the words mean in the language and culture in which they were written? It is difficult to know. It's possible that we don't understand the counting systems of ancient Mesopotamia because we don't understand their worldview. It was a highly developed culture. In the Fertile Crescent, we found our ancestors were rich in wisdom, mathematical, science, astronomy, economics, compounding interests, logarithms, and architecture. We have evidence of this in archaeology. And we can see that they took um, tallies in their accounting on these cuneiform um, tablets, which are wedges uh, indicating um, products of numbers in sequence, and this is, a, this is an accounting tally like you would find in a marketplace. We also know that harmony and symmetry were high on the Mesopotamian value system. They liked their numbers in neat lines that matched each other and ended the same way. Sounds a lot like those genealogies in Genesis. We also know that their numbers, of course, were, were different. These are different markings for numbers. We wouldn't be able to do math with this or logarithms even if we knew how, and I, I guarantee you I don't know how to do it. Instead of the system that we use, they used a system called a sexagismal system, which is a base 60 system. So in our base 10 system, when you get to nine, you move up to the next place value. In a sexagismal system, when you get to 59, you move up to the next place value. Does that make sense to you? Would you like to do some math? I tried. Forget it. Go on YouTube. Burn some brain cells. Have fun. As for me, I just needed to understand how it worked generally. They found 60 to be the most functional number because of the lower numbers, it has the most factors. So I'll remind you what it means to factor a number. It's how many things you can multiply together evenly to get to that number. And in the case of 60, there are 12 factors. 1, 2, 3, 4, 5, 6, 10, 12, 15, 30, and 60. They used this system because it worked for what they were doing. But is this what we're looking at when we're looking at those large numbers in Genesis? Are they base 60 numbers? Well, it turns out they are not. Sorry. There's something more at play. And so the question is, what is it? Well, we're going to talk about the symbolic number 60 in terms of the Mesopotamians. So at the time, 60 not only meant 60 of something, it also meant perfection perfection. So if you use that word to indicate something, that thing was considered perfect. In fact, 60 was the number they gave their highest God. So it's not just a number, it's a symbol of something greater. Could the writer of Genesis be influenced by the numerical language and worldview at the time 
and could these numbers reflect something of a sexagismal worldview? It seems possible. There are 32 scriptures that have reference to the word 60 that stand out to me now that I've been made aware of it. Notably, one you'll remember from both Matthew and Mark's version references the, um, the parable of the good seed. And when the good seed landed on the good ground, Jesus said it will yield 30, 60 to 100 fold. I wouldn't say it in my modern language that way, but it stands out to me now. And multiples of 60 also appear again in the words of Moses in regard to Noah just before the flood when Genesis 6-3 quotes Noah as saying, is quoted as saying, My spirit shall not abide in man forever, for he is flesh, and his days shall be 120. 60 times 2, a double perfect time for this man. Now, sacred symbols, sacred and symbolic numbers aren't completely foreign to us. Though we're more attuned to them now that we're studying the Bible, the ones that we're familiar with are 3, 7, 12, and 40, which each mean something like whole or holy or complete in one sense or the other. So when you see those words, you recognize God is saying something is just so. I'm sorry. The camera died. 